0: Well, this morning I want to speak about the requirements that God places on his people around the issues of justice and mercy in our world, justice and mercy. You know, as the head of World Vision, I have a front row seat to issues of justice and mercy every day somewhere in the world. It might be South Sudan or Iraq or Lebanon or Central America or Myanmar in Asia, China, Pakistan. World Vision has the privilege of bringing justice and mercy to people in 100 countries around the world, and tens of millions of people each year who have been marginalized are touched by our ministry in some way. Uh, Jesus called them the least of these, uh, the least of these among us in Matthew 25, and I'll uh, talk about that passage a bit later. But before I begin, I want to warn you that I will be jumping around to different scriptures today in addition to the text from Luke 16 that Dan just read. I'll be referencing Matthew 25, but I'd like to start with a very well-known verse from Micah 6, 8, one of the simplest statements by God in scripture of the expectations that he has of his people for caring about justice and mercy in our world. And I'm going to read it from the contemporary English version. The Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done, let mercy be your first concern, and humbly obey your God. Now I like this translation because it suggests that our concern for mercy and justice need to go beyond just being people who live justly and who demonstrate mercy and compassion personally. You see God calls us to a broader commitment than that. He wants us to make mercy and justice priorities more broadly, not just personally, but in our society, our nation, our community, and in the world. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern. You see, we can't stand by and see racial discrimination in our country and just say, well, Lord, at least I'm not a bigot. No, God wants us to take on bigotry in our community, in our nation, He wants us to see that justice is done for everyone. We can't look at the desperate plight of Syrian refugees fleeing from the violence of religious extremism and say, Lord, we really had nothing to do with this. It's not our problem. No, God wants mercy to be our first concern, and He expects us to use our influence and our resources to stand in the gap for the suffering people of our world. Saying to God, it's not our fault, frankly, just doesn't cut it. God sets a much higher bar than that because he takes these words, justice and mercy, very seriously. You know, one of the deterrents to seeking justice and showing mercy in our world is that our vision is almost always distorted in some way. The Apostle Paul said, for now we see in a mirror dimly or through a glass darkly. If only we could see the world as God sees the world, to see it through his eyes. But there are so many things in our culture that distort our ability to see clearly. It's almost as if we're all wearing very thick glasses with multiple distorting lenses that cloud what we see. There's a white lens and a black lens in America. There's a rich lens and a poor lens, a male lens and a female lens. There's a Republican lens and a Democrat lens and maybe this year a libertarian lens. There's a Presbyterian and Pentecostal and Baptist lens, all the denominational lenses that we bring to the table. But, you know, maybe most powerful of all is that we all look through this lens of our American patriotism, sometimes letting our national identity almost overpower our Christian identity. Are we Americans first and Christians second, or Christians first and Americans second? Somehow we act as if God loves Americans more than He loves the other peoples of the world, which I don't believe to be true. So it's no wonder we have such a hard time seeing the world through God's eyes. And if we're honest as Christians, looking back over our history, we would have to admit that we've had blurred vision at times. We didn't see slavery, the evil of slavery in our own country. We didn't see the oppression of women for generations We didn't see clearly civil rights for African-Americans if you go back to the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we still don't clearly see God's great concern for the least of these in our world because very often they don't look like us or speak like us. They're very different from us in many ways. You see, justice and mercy require us to see the world as God sees it first. And God sees the world without the distortions of sin and class and race and gender and culture and nationality. And so, as Christians, we should always be praying this prayer to see the world as God sees the world, to feel as God feels, and to love and care as God loves and cares. I want to use this parable, kind of an unusual parable in scripture of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, and I want to derive a few principles from this passage about justice and mercy. This is a simple story of really two people: a rich man and the beggar named Lazarus, who sat at his gate and I'm just gonna reread those first verses. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. I wanna make three observations uh, about mercy and justice from this passage, and the first is this, injustice, and lack of mercy are often passive rather than active. This passage paints a shocking picture of disparity between the rich and the poor, just juxtaposing them right next to each other, the haves and the have-nots. And the first thing to notice uh, is that the rich man did absolutely nothing to harm Lazarus. He did nothing to harm Lazarus. He didn't beat him or mistreat him in any way just as I'm sure no one here today has done anything to harm the homeless in Chicago streets, or the poor in Africa, or the Syrian refugees, no one here this morning has done anything to harm them. Undoubtedly, our rich man felt quite innocent of any wrongdoing until he found himself in Hades. You see, his sin was not a sin of commission. It was a sin of omission. But it seems like for Jesus, sins of omission always seemed at least as serious as sins of commission. The towering passage of the separation of the sheep and the goats on the day of judgment that we find in Matthew 25 suggests that our sins of omission will be weighted very heavily by the Lord. I want you to listen to the heat of Jesus' anger toward those in Matthew 25 who he's addressing who neglected justice and mercy. He says this, and this is pretty harsh. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. You see, every transgression listed here in Matthew 25 is a sin of omission, a failure to see that justice is done a failure to make mercy our first concern. When the rich man walked by Lazarus, it was his Matthew 25 moment. And just like those that Jesus had cursed for their apathy in Matthew 25, the rich man failed his test. The second point I want to make is that injustice and lack of mercy are often the result of objectifying people while the rich man knew the name of Lazarus, he didn't actually consider him a person worthy of his concern. For all practical purposes, Lazarus was invisible, a non-person. Most of the disparity, violence, and oppression in our world is the result of objectifying and dehumanizing the other, believing that others are not like us. So we place labels on entire groups of people which somehow make them less human and less worthy of our mercy and compassion. They are the homeless, we've labeled them. They are refugees, somehow a category different from us. They're illegal immigrants. Maybe they're Palestinians or they're Muslims. Maybe they're Asian or Hispanic. Pick your label, we have a lot of labels that we use for people. If the other is not really like us, we always find ways to mistreat, exploit, exclude, sometimes even kill them. I think of the Rwandan genocide. The Hutus and Tutsis considering one another the other. And 22 years ago, 800,000 people were slaughtered in 100 days in Rwanda. The Holocaust of World War II, Jews were considered not like the Germans, other, foreigners. And what about our own history with Native American peoples, with slavery, with civil rights? These are all prime examples of labeling groups of people as somehow less human and less worthy of mercy and compassion. In each of these cases, churches and Christians were complicit in labeling and exploiting entire groups of people. And isn't this exactly what has happened over the past few weeks in our country, when some have labeled all young black men as dangerous? And of course, all policemen are racist. You see the labels? And when you label groups like this, things spiral downward, often resulting in violence. Using labels to diminish humanity, the humanity of whole groups of people is a tactic as old as history itself. Somehow it allows us to justify excluding and rejecting them without God's requirements for justice and mercy in our world. Point number three, injustice is also personal. You know, regardless of the ultimate causes that might have created the disparity between Lazarus and the rich man, there there was a system there, an economic system, that resulted in rich and poor. We have it today as well. The rich man had a personal opportunity to set things right, to compensate for the system, to recognize the disparity. It would have been so very easy for him to instruct one of his servants to bring Lazarus just the scraps that fell from his table, just a little food, maybe a comfortable mat or pad to sleep on, maybe some ointment for his sores. But he didn't do it. He didn't take this small step. And surely, as a good Jew, and this rich man was a good Jew in the first century, our, he would have known by heart the second greatest commandment, to love his neighbor as himself. And yet still, he did nothing personal, personally to set things right. But this second greatest commandment holds us to an even higher standard. You see, Jesus doesn't want us to help Lazarus. He commands us to love Lazarus, because Jesus knows That if we love him, of course we will help him. Think about that for a minute. Jesus doesn't want us to help the Lazaruses of our world. He actually wants us to love them. Because he knows that we always help the people that we love. We always help the people that we love. It's second nature. I want to make one last rather sobering point about this parable. The thing that should really shake all of us up today in this room is that we are the rich man. We are the rich man in this story. We are the wealthy, we are the educated, we are the privileged and the powerful by any standard of measure you want to apply if you look at the global human population. The American church is the wealthiest church in the history of Christendom. We have more resources, more influence, more power than any Christian nation in history. And just like the rich man did in Jesus' parable, we will someday be having our sobering conversation with God, about what we did with what we were entrusted with. Now it's easy to speak about seeing that justice is done in the abstract or the theological sense. So I want to apply this to, as Dan shared, something profound happening in our world today, the greatest humanitarian crisis in a generation, the refugee crisis in the Middle East. Just a few weeks ago, I returned from Iraq and Beirut no place to send a senior citizen, by the way, where I had the opportunity to meet with refugee families, both Christian and Muslim. You see, some of these refugees are Christian. The majority are Muslim. Most Americans have no sense of the scale of this tragedy, which has displaced 12 million people inside and around Syria and another 3 million more inside Iraq, 15 million total Lazaruses, who have been laid at our gate by this crisis. Now, I want to make this number more real for you because big numbers tend to go over our heads, and they're hard to process. But I want you to imagine for a moment that every man, woman, and child in the following American cities had to flee from their homes with nothing but the clothes on their back. San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, Albuquerque, Austin, Jacksonville, San Francisco, Indianapolis, Columbus, Fort Worth, Charlotte, and Detroit. I'm not done. Let's add Denver, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Boston, Nashville, Baltimore, and Seattle, and for good measure, let's throw in Oak Brook, Hinsdale, and Elmhurst to bring this a little closer to home. That is the size and scale of the human suffering that's been created by this refugee crisis. If even one of those cities in America required every man, woman, and child to flee for their lives, we would be looking at it as a catastrophe in our country. But imagine every one of those cities, every human being having to run for their lives. You see, a massive wound has been opened in the Middle East caused by this horrific Syrian war and the rise of ISIS, and human beings are pouring out of that wound like a river of blood human beings, each made in the image of God. It is the worst human catastrophe of our time, and 80% of them are women, children, and the elderly. World Vision is on the ground in all five of these most affected countries, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Turkey. Our programs have touched more than 2 million lives over the past four years in those countries. And we're helping them right where they are because, get this, most of them do not want to leave their country. They want to stay in their culture, they want to stay in the Middle East. Many of them still have their house keys because they fully intend to go home someday and unlock, hopefully, the lives that they left when they fled. And we're determined, only a tiny percentage of them will come to the United States, and I believe we should welcome those that come here and show them the love of Christ. But World Vision is determined to stand in the gap with these broken people, demonstrating the love of Christ to them in their hour of need in the region. To humanize this a bit more for you, because these are a lot of statistics and numbers, I want to show you a short video to introduce you to a boy named Adil, who fled from Syria and made it to Lebanon with his mother and younger siblings. It's about three minutes long, and it will give you an idea of a typical refugee family. We can show the video.
1: <laughs> she went <to> an airplane. <laughs> what was she do with this airplane? لقد كانت مكانه للمكانه 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 للمكانه
0: للمكانه
1: للمكانه 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 ما وخايفين على اليوم وهيك لا من مبسطة يعني مهن مأملات الشغلات اللي يريدينها يعني مثلا ليدنا لعاب شيء مهن مأملات الشيء يظل خافون بلا يضل يخافون يقعدون من النوم ليه يخافون ما تجيهم اذا مثلا رحب يحضرون هاي ورجاني جاني ايه وضي يجي ربع ساعه ظلت صيح تخاف، تخاف علينا اجت حالنا نوبات للطيران أولي <تصفيق> بدها اشتغل مشان تجيب مصاري لاخواتي بس بس اكبر اجيب مصاري لاخواتي وهيك امشي حالتنا بيها انا مالي تقول كل شيء غير بس اللي اريد يطلبوا بدي انا هن شو تريدين شو شو تريدين <laughs> 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 she wants an <to> airplane. An airplane. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: would she do with this airplane? What would you the with I am
1: going to I to the
0: You know, this little boy in the video we just saw is just another heartbreaking example of the children who were unlucky enough to be born in Syria just a few years before this horrible civil war broke out. They've been exposed to unspeakable violence. They saw their father die, their school bombed. They've been ripped from their homes and separated from their family. And a whole generation of Syrian children like Adil, are no longer in school. Some of them have not been in school for five years. Imagine what might become of them. Millions of children, just like Adil and his family, are crying out to anyone who will listen. What are they crying out for? Justice and mercy. Last October, I traveled to Lebanon a second time with Michael Gerson, the former speechwriter for President Bush, Wheaton College grad, who's now a columnist for The Washington Post. And I wanted Michael to meet some of the refugees and to see these things with his own eyes. And when he returned, he wrote a several powerful columns in the Post about what he saw. I wanna quote from one of them. He said, the Syrian refugee crisis is now the greatest humanitarian challenge since the height of the AIDS pandemic. As with that tragedy, it is a generational test. If the global refugee response is insufficient here, it is insufficient. If American foreign policy is resigned or indifferent, it has badly lost its way. And if American churches and charities are not relevant here, they are irrelevant. You know, Gerson's statement should get our attention because he's suggesting that this is one of those defining moments for the church. He calls it a generational test. And yet, many of our political leaders over this past six or eight months have been shouting about closing our borders building walls, banning Muslims from our country. Last fall, 31 U.S. governors said that their states would not accept even one Syrian refugee. One presidential candidate in the fall primaries said he would not even allow a five-year-old orphan Syrian child to come to his state. To me, this is breathtaking, breathtaking as a Christian. We have somehow managed to take the tragedy of 15 million desperate people and make it all about us, about our security, about our safety, about our prosperity. But Jesus said, I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I wish I could tell you that churches and Christians aren't buying into this kind of narrative But in a recent survey of American pastors that World Vision conducted with LifeWay Research, we found that 80% of our churches have no involvement whatsoever in helping Syrian refugees either here or in the region. I was recently with the head of one of America's largest denominations, and he lamented to me that the people in their pews, their denomination's pews, are increasingly getting their theology and their worldview from cable news, instead of from Scripture or the pulpit. If this is a generational test for our nation and for the church, I'm afraid we're failing our test. Because, you see, the Lord has told us what is right and what He demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be our first concern and humbly obey our God. You see, justice takes courage sometimes. Mercy almost always requires sacrifice. And walking humbly with our God demands that we take seriously the second greatest commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. I want to introduce you to just one more of these refugees this morning. I think one more story will make the point about their humanity. She's a 10-year-old girl I met in Jordan. Her name is Haya. Haya and her sister and her mother are now refugees in a massive tent camp in Jordan. 80,000 people in a place that was just a parched piece of earth five years ago. Now it's a city of 80,000 refugees and a few square miles. When I arrived, little Haya had taken the time the day before to write me a letter, which she read aloud to me, and it was her cry for help. She was crying out for help. And I think Haya would be pleased if I read an excerpt this morning from her letter. This is Haya's voice, 10 years old. "'Peace to you,' she said." I am talking to you on behalf of the Syrian children. I'm calling on you, the people of the other world. Have you ever thought of the children of Syria? My country, Syria? Syria is in pain. Syria is bleeding. Syria is crying for her children. Her children were her candles, and they've faded out. Please, my name is, my, my name is Haya. My father was killed. I loved my father so much, but now I'll never see him again. You know, I think this little girl's letter was written to all of us here today because you see, we are those people of the other world. What if we saw this catastrophe as a once in a lifetime opportunity to share the love of Christ in the heart of the Middle East? What if we saw children like Hia as the Lazarus that God has placed at our gate, desperate to be seen, desperate for help, desperate for hope? These refugees are the most marginalized people in our world today. They are truly the least of these. The things listed in Matthew 25 are a virtual laundry list of refugee needs. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. The refugees have no food, they're hungry. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. They need clean water and sanitation, millions of them fleeing with nothing, no toilets, no water. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. They fled with just the clothes on their back, and they need warm clothes to survive the winters. I was sick, and you looked after me. They're in desperate need of even the most basic medical care. I was in prison, and you visited me. They are imprisoned in the squalor of these massive refugee camps. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. They are strangers in the world. They're unwanted, unwelcome, and unloved by every country in the world. So why should we help them? Maybe because Jesus said, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. This statement also from Matthew 25 is remarkable when we make mercy our first concern, when we see that justice is done, we do it not just for the poor and the oppressed, we do it to Jesus himself. You see, the corollary to this is also true. When we ignore them, when we fail to respond to the Lazaruses in our world, Jesus tells us it's exactly the same as ignoring him. You see, this Jesus... Jesus himself is with the homeless on the streets of Chicago. The Jesus we worship every Sunday is hungry somewhere in Africa. He's trafficked in Asia. He's fleeing from violence in Central America. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is suffering right now among the Syrian refugees. And he beckons us to feed him, to comfort him, to care for him in whatever way we can. I believe that this is a Matthew 25 moment for the church in America. What will we do in the face of the greatest human suffering of our day? How will we respond? Have you ever thought of the children of Syria? That's the question a 10-year-old girl named Haya has posed to us. And I believe that Jesus is waiting for our answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how do we pray for 15 million broken people? How can we pray for the stopping of unspeakable violence, Lord? Violence that has driven these people from their homes. Violence that has spread all over the world to our country, to France, to Belgium, to the United Kingdom. Lord, help us to see the world's people as you see them. Help us to love them as you love them, to find compassion in our hearts when it seems like we don't have any to give. Lord, let our hearts be broken by the things that break your heart. Lord, we just pray that we would be stewards of that which you've entrusted to us. Help us, Lord, to remember these people in our prayers, to do what we can to help, even from a distance. Lord, I pray that this church might rise up and do something important in this refugee crisis, whether it's resettling refugees here in this community, or reaching out across the ocean to help them where they are. We commit these things to your care, Lord, and we pray in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.